Uh, Colossians chapter 2, once again, so far in our series, what we found specifically concerning marriage is this, is the primary purpose for marriage is not um, uh, about happiness. It is not about sexual fulfillment. It is not about compatibility. It is not primarily about um, happiness. It's not, it's not any of the things that so many people say marriage is truly about. Instead, we have discovered through the learning of the Word of God, the teaching of the Word of God, that the primary purpose of marriage, according to God's divine created purpose back in Genesis, which was revealed in our study in Ephesians chapter 5, is this, is that God created marriage for one primary purpose, is that what, and that would be for that marriage to illustrate, demonstrate, and to picture to a lost and dying world what it is like to be in a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ, the relationship between Christ and his church. So you're wondering, why are we married? Here's why. So that you can demonstrate amongst your friends, amongst your family, of what it's like to be in an unbreakable, listen, an unbreakable, grace-saturated relationship. That's what you want to convey to a lost and dying world. And that's the purpose that God has given us for marriage. And so what we've seen is this, is that if we believe that marriage is primarily about anything else, we have to humble ourselves, repent, jettison those particular ideas and beliefs that we've held on to for so long. And we have to adopt in humility God's much grander, greater, glorious purpose for marriage. Now, last week we moved from, from purpose to problem. Do you remember that and every marriage has a problem would you agree no why are you guys so quiet a bunch of bunch of proudful pride sinners all right everyone does and that is you're demonstrating it right now it's sin all right uh, the problem is marriage is ultimately sin it's not your spouse it's not primarily you it's you and your spouse because both of you are sinners when you got married both sinners said i do and the problem is, is that sin does not mesh well with relationships. Sin destroys our vertical relationship with God, and sin destroys our horizontal relationship with each other, and especially within that marriage covenant with our spouse. And so when we sin, ultimately what we're doing is this, is we are replacing God from the throne of our heart with ourselves. We are rebelling and we are, in essence, saying, God, it is no longer about you, about your will, about your desires. Now it's all about me and what I desire. And one of the things that we learned about last week was this, is that when we sin, we understand that our conscience convicts us, condemns us. And the ultimate outcome of our sin is what? Is shame and guilt. And so because we don't like feeling shame or guilt, right? I hear that all the time. I don't go to that church because they make me feel guilty. And you're just kind of like, no, dude, your guilt makes you feel guilty, you know. And uh, so, so it's one of those types of things. And, and so what we find is because we hate feeling that way, we have this tendency to conceal our sin, to try to cover it up. And one of the ways we do that within the marriage is we begin to try to draw attention away from our own sin and begin to highlight it in the sin of our spouse, so what we begin to do is, in order for us to lift ourselves up and feel better, we push our spouse down. And what we do is we begin to bring shame and condemnation on them. And as long as it's on them, guess what? It doesn't have to be on us. The problem is, is within the marriage, there are two sinners. And you have two sinners that are going back and forth, pushing each other down to try to get the upper hand. And so what we find is, marriage can't be what God had originally intended with that kind of activity going on. 
So what we need to do is this, we saw last week, is the only way for this marriage really to be able to work in the way that God has designed it and its purpose is no longer to demand perfection in the marriage, but rather to dispense grace in the marriage. And by dispensing grace, that is giving to my spouse what they do not deserve. What you ultimately do is you create a safe environment. Now it's a fire, an environment that is free from shame and guilt. And now you can begin to grow and your love can begin to grow and it can become all that God had originally intended it to be. And so this morning, what I want to do is this is I want to show how, how we can create a safe environment in our marriage by dispensing grace. We said we have to dispense grace, but how do you do that? What are the nuts and bolts? How do we do that within the marriage relationship itself? And so I would suggest this morning that we dispense grace by incorporating two principles. Two principles. First of all, forbearing. And secondly, forgiving. Forbearing and forgiving is how we dispense grace to one another. Now, notice, if you will, in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 begins by, uh, in verse 13, says this. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. When he says, and you, what Paul is doing in these first two chapters, or the whole, the whole book is written to the church there at Colossae. And what he's doing is he's writing this to them. And so the you refers to them, but guess what? It also refers to you and to me. Because the truths that are pertained here to them pertain also to us. And so he's writing them, and, and what he wants to do first is he wants to remind them of their position and our position before God saved us. And what he says, again, is he says, who were dead in your trespasses? Before a person is saved, before God saves them, they're dead. Did you know that? Now, you say they're not dead. We're still physically alive. Certainly, they were physically alive. But we're not saying physically dead. We're saying spiritually dead. You remember in the book of Genesis, early on, uh, God told um, Adam this. He said, listen, you may eat of any of the trees in the garden except for one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And on the day that you eat it, you will surely, what church? You will surely die. That's right. Now, did they instantaneously, immediately die physically? No. Death Incorruption did enter in. They did begin to physically die, but it was over a long period. But what we understand is spiritually, they, they died instantaneously at that point. And he says, so the condition that we're in before God saves us is that we are dead in our sins, dead in our trespasses. And not only that, he says, and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Again, he's not talking primarily about physical circumcision. He's talking about a spiritual circumcision. Just as, as a person uh, is, um, is still in their flesh when they are uncircumcised, so we are in our sin when we fail to be spiritually circumcised. It's basically this. Circumcision was given as a picture of God to demonstrate our need to rid ourselves, or God to rid ourselves, to cut away the sin around our heart. And so what he's saying there is this, is that if the flesh still remains, you are still in your sin. And so he says, before we were believers in Christ, before God saved us, we were dead because of our sins and we remained inside of our sins. And so let me say this. There is no more pathetic and horrible place to be than to still be in your sin. There's no more awful place to be. Because the Bible says, if you are today still in your sin, that you have not been forgiven of your sin, you're still in them, then you are most to be pitied. 
you're most to be pitied because you find yourself this morning of being at enmity with God, which means that you are an enemy of God. You are a breaker of his laws. You have broken his laws. You've rebelled against him. And the Bible says that because you're still in your sins, that the very wrath of God is being stored up until the day of judgment when it all comes crashing down on you. What a horrible position to be. But it's the place that every single person is in before God saves them. Now, that's bad news. That was our position. But now he turns to good news and God's doing. God's doing is God's sovereign act of salvation. Notice these three beautiful words. Once he tells us the bad news, he says this, God made alive. God made alive. Now, I hope that you understand the significance of what's being said here in this particular text. What he's saying is salvation is of God. He's saying you were dead spiritually completely. You didn't bring yourself back to life. Just like if I were to die physically, you don't see dead people taking the little paddles and putting it on themselves and trying to revive themselves, do you? No, they don't even know they're dead. They're completely dead. He says you were completely spiritually dead. You had nothing to do with your salvation. God made you alive. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, and he breathed new life into you when you were completely dead. See, there's a mistake that I think that all of us make. I make the same thing when people say, hey, how did you get saved? And when I sit there and say, well, let me tell you what I did. And and here's the deal. I don't mean I was a good person like so many do. I'm saying, let me tell you what I did. I realized I was a sinner. I repented of my sin and I placed my faith in Jesus Christ. That's why I'm saved. That's true, but it's only half the story. The only reason you did that was because God made your dead spirit alive. He made you alive. And when he brought life into your soul, when he regenerated your soul, when he gave you a new nature, at that point, you came to faith, you believed, and you repented. Does that make sense? So he says, it's completely and utterly of God, an act of grace upon God. And then notice what he says. He says, it is not only that God make alive, but he also says, together with him. Now the question is, who's him? It's not referring to God the Father. We're talking about God the Son, Jesus Christ. And what he's picturing here is, together with him, is picturing that one flesh or one spirit union that we've been talking about this whole time. It's the very thing that marriage is supposed to demonstrate and to illustrate. Just as two people come together, a man and a woman come together, and they enter into a one flesh union, that is a picture of the one spirit union that every believer comes in with Jesus Christ. We are united with Jesus Christ when God saves us. He puts us together. So when he died, we died. When he resurrects unto new life, guess what? We are resurrected unto new life. And so what he says here is, is that God made alive together with him. And then notice this last portion here. It's not only our position and God's doing, but what we also see is we're going to see Jesus cost. He says, having forgiven us all our sins by concealing the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now look just for a moment when he says he made us alive together with him, having forgiven all our sins. All our sins, not part of our sins, not most of our sins, but all of our sins. Yes, he forgave them all past, present and future. Now, here's what we said last week. We said the only reason, only way a holy God could have a relationship with a sinful people is to do what? 
no longer demand perfection, but rather to do what? Dispense grace. Do you remember that? Well, that was only half the truth. Aren't you glad when your pastor only tells you half truths? Don't you feel relieved now? Well, it's only half truth because here's the thing. Because we serve a holy and a just God, he still has to demand perfection from you. He still demands perfection from you. He demands, first of all, that you pay for your sin, payment for your sin. Secondly, he demands for you to be perfect. How are you doing with that? Can you pay for your sin? Can you be perfect? No. So what God did is even though he demands those things, he demonstrated his grace. How? By allowing Jesus Christ to be our substitute. He allowed Christ to make the payment. In fact, he allowed Christ to be our payment for sin. And he allowed Christ to be our perfection. So when we are united with him, both our payment is made and our perfection is complete in him. You got that? And so that's what he does here. He forgives, but again, it comes at a high cost. He sits there and he says, canceling the record of debt. And he says, and he stood against us with illegal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. We see here again, our position. What a horrible position it is before God saved us. We see an amazing act of grace in God's doing of saving us completely and fully based on him. And we see this cost. What cost? Jesus cost being nailed to the cross. This is how God dealt with us. God had a long list of debts, your debts and my debts. And when he came to you, he could have very easily taken those debts, made a long list and take it and lorded it over you. He could have shamed you. He could have guilt you. He could continue to do it. And now he could even have the right to take that list of sins and failures. And what he could do is he could use it to warrant your eternal death in a fiery hell. That's not what God did. God took it. He rolled it up. He placed it into the hand of his only begotten son. And he nailed it to an old rugged cross. That's what he did with it. And in doing so, that sin was covered. Your sins were forgiven. But listen, don't ever lose the sight that that forgiveness came at a very high and great cost. Do you got that? Do you see where we are this morning so far? There's a picture of what Christ did for us. Now flip over, if you will, to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. And here we find ourselves in verse 12. Now, what he's going to do is in chapters 1 and 2, what he does is he demonstrates all that Christ did for us. Now he's going to, in chapters 3 and 4, he's going to unpack how we now need to take what Christ did for us and we need to push it out to one another, including our spouses. Okay? So what he says is in verse 12, he says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. He's doing two things here. First of all, he reminds us of how God dispensed grace towards us. It's just what we covered. Notice how he does it. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy ones, and beloved ones. That's God's grace. You say, how was that God's grace by us being those things because we couldn't have achieved it? The Bible tells us, first of all, that we are God's chosen ones. Why did God choose you? If you're saved today, why did God choose you? Why did he make you alive? Because you're better than the person sitting next to you? Because you're smarter than the person next to you? No, it's because simply by his own sovereign choice, he chose. He's God. He can choose, right? And he chose to save you. Not because of anything you did, but because of his goodness, because of his grace, because of his right, because of his, because he is, he is a righteous God, a good God. So he chose you. So we are what? We are God's chosen. Notice what else we are. 
We are holy ones. What does that mean? We're set apart ones. When God saved you, he set you apart no longer for you to do your own thing, but for you to bring every bit of glory to God that you can. Your finances are no longer your own. Your time is no longer your own. Your abilities are no longer your own. Your life is no longer your own. Why? Because you were bought with a price, the precious blood of the Lord Jesus. And so what he says here, he says, how, and why did he do that? Why did he set you apart from anything you did? No, because of the grace of God. See, you are chosen ones. You are holy ones. And notice this, you're beloved ones. Let me ask you about this. What is so beloved about a rebellious people? What's so easy to love about people that constantly rebel against God? What is so wonderful about your creation that you created, sit there and go, I don't care anything about you, it's all about me. Is there anything loving about that? Absolutely not. So God, in his love, extended his love and called us his beloved out of his grace. Nothing because we did or nothing because we ultimately deserved. So this is a picture he reminds us of how God dispensed grace to us. Now notice what he's going to do. He reminds us of this once again. And now he's going to remind us of how we dispense grace toward each other. Okay? And he does it in two ways. First of all, we forbear. Now notice what he says. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. What does he mean by put on? What he's saying is now that we are God's chosen God's holy ones, God's beloved ones. We need to put on attitudes that are consistent with who we are. You understand? And who we are is because God has extended all those things of grace. We should be kind, humble, meek, uh, 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 meek and patient. That is only consistent. If we were God's beloved ones, holy ones and and uh, and uh, excuse me, and chosen ones. Do you think he would set now put on anger, resentment, bitterness, hate? Does that seem consistent? No. He's giving them this consistent attitudes that are consistent with who we are based on the grace of Jesus Christ. So those are attitudes. But what he does is he shows us how we are to activate these, what we're supposed to do with these internal attitudes. And the first one, as we said, is we do it by forbearing. He says forbearing with one another. Now, what does forbear mean? It means simply to endure. Or to give you another definition, it means to have a very long, 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 long fuse. That's what it means. It means to be extremely patient, extremely enduring, going longer than you could ever imagine. He says that's how we demonstrate God's grace that he shows us to each other. Why? Because that's what God does for us. I know you think you're something, but do you understand a holy God has to endure you? You do get that, right? I mean, it's great. He has forgiven us and and we are and he sees us as one. But every single day, even though we repented one day of our sin, it's a continual repentance. Why? Because we're continual sinning. Each day we are failing our God, is it not? So until that day that he ultimately saves us, we're going to have to forbear. But guess what? We're going to have to forbear with each other as well. Because even though God has changed you, and even though God has changed your spouse, and even though he has regenerated you and changed you from the inside out and given you a new nature, the truth is, until we are out of these bodies in a glorified body, you will still and always struggle with sin. And here's the difficulty that I find. A lot of the sin that we struggle with and the ones that we hate the most in our spouse might very be the ones that you have to endure until that body is glorified. Isn't that encouraging? 
But in the same exact way, that's how God does with us. He endures for all that period of time with us. And here's what I want you to understand as far as the enduring. It's all throughout the word of God. In Luke chapter 9, verse 41, it's used to describe Jesus bearing with sins of the Jews. In 1 Corinthians 4, 12, it describes Christians enduring under persecution until the very end. In 1 Corinthians 13, 7 through 8, it says, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Again, why do we need to endure? Because we are not perfect. And here's what I want you to understand. Not only are you going to have to endure your spouse's sin, but you're going to have to endure your spouse's strangeness. And as John Piper says, some of the times you're not going to know the difference between the two. Do you guys understand that at all? In other words, it's not just because they have a lousy attitude and they're self-centered. It's because they're unclean. It's because they're too clean. It's because they like to keep the van doors open when they go inside and not shut them. It's because they're constantly harping that the doors need to be shut and not open, right? It's because one likes the toilet seat up, the other likes it down. Those aren't sins, right? At least the actual act is not. So what the Bible says is not only do we have to endure our sin of our spouse, but also their strangeness. And sometimes you don't know which one is which. You don't know if it's sin or strangeness that you're trying to forbear with. And the Bible says that that is exactly what we have to do. Why? Because it's what God is doing with us. Second thing we have to do is this, is forgive. Now notice what the Bible says. He says, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. Did you see what he just did there? Forgiving one another. As the Lord has forgiven you, he is making an argumentation of lesser to greater. He's saying you need to forgive to one another because he knows within them what each and every one of us are going to say. Oh, man, you don't know what they did. And he says, as the Lord has forgiven you. He's trying to put things in perspective. What he's saying is, hey, listen, you need to forgive. And we know automatically go, man, you have no idea, God, what my spouse did against me. And he says, as I have forgiven you. Do you see what's happening here? I think the truth of what he's saying is really found in Matthew chapter 18. There's a parable there, and and I'm not going to pile on poor Peter because preachers always do that. uh, Way godly man than I will ever be. But Peter sits there, and he comes to Jesus, and he asks the same question we're all asking every day of our lives. Is, how often do you have to forgive somebody? He says, oh, good teacher. He says, how often do we have to forgive someone? And he says, seven times. Now, when he says that, he feels like he's being uber gracious. Okay, you you understand what I'm saying? Because during the day, during the day, uh, there were two thoughts during that day. And most people believe that you either forgive them one time or two times, three times. That was way out, man. And that's what the rabbis, the religious leaders were teaching. Man, if you do it more than two times, you don't need to forgive them anymore. So he comes up and goes, man, I'm going to double that and add one. Watch this, guys. Jesus, how many times do we have to forgive Seven times? Jesus goes, no, not seven times, but seven times, 70 times. What? what? Everyone who can't do math like me is like, seven times, seven times. You know, they're a, and Jesus realizes that they don't quite understand what's going on. He, the point is not to calculate 70 times seven. So he begins to tell this parable. He says there was a king. And he wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And so he came to one who had a grotesque, Debt. And that debt was 10,000 talents. Now, let me just explain to you that 
there was no way that these people could have ever gotten their minds around that sum of money. It would be like me telling you that you owe a trillion dollars. Now, I'm not talking about the government owing a trillion dollars. I'm talking about you, yourself, owing somebody a trillion dollars. You can't even get your arms around that. All right? It's beyond your comprehension. And so what we find is this, is, 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 is the man comes and he says, hey, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sell you. I'm going to sell your family. I'm going to sell your wife and, until you guys can ultimately pay into slavery, until you can pay me off. Well, you know what that is? That's a death sentence. They're all going to die. They'll never be able to pay this. And so the man, he, he comes and he kneels down before his master and he says, have mercy on me. Just give me more time. Be patient to me. The Bible says that the king at that particular point, looking down at him, had pity on his heart for the man. And he forgave his entire debt. The trillion dollars, the massive amount that they couldn't even understand, just, just forgave the whole thing. Now, you can imagine what kind of impact that would have on each of us, wouldn't you? I mean, can you imagine that kind of impact and how gracious we would be to be able to return the favor? So Jesus' point continues. He says, but then that man immediately went out. And when he went out, he found somebody who owed him some money. And when he went out, this is what he did. He grabbed a hold of him. He grabbed him by the scruff of the neck. And he says, pay me what you owe me today. And the man falls to his knees. And as he falls to his knees, he sits there and he says, please just give me more time. And he says, I will not give you more time. He says, I am going to throw you into prison. You will be thrown into prison until you can pay me every debt. Now, how much debt did he have? The Bible says that it was 100 denarii. Now, that was still a pretty good sum of money. It was about four months of a salary of a day laborer. So it was a still good amount of money. But notice this. It was nothing compared to the debt that he had ultimately be forgiven. It's not even in the same ballpark. It's ridiculous to even try to compare to the two. And then what the scriptures tell us is that the king finds out about this and he doesn't like it. The king that had forgiven such a great debt. He finds this man and he says, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And he goes, and should you not have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And Jesus continues and says, and in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And so also, this is how Jesus sums it up. You always want to know what Jesus says last about each one of these because here's the key. He says, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now, those are strong words. Those are scary words. He goes, my heavenly father, if you refuse to forgive, my heavenly father will do the same thing to you and not forgive you. Now, that causes some theological problems, does it not? Church, what happens if God does not forgive us? What happens if he doesn't forgive your debt? You're separated him from all eternity. So the question is, what is he saying here? Is he ultimately saying to you and I that if you and I refuse to forgive somebody, that God is going to take his salvation back from us and he's going to throw his headlong into hell, that there's actually sins that he will not forgive, actually sins that Christ's death did not cover? No, I don't believe that's what he's saying at all. Instead, what I believe he's showing here is this. I believe he's ultimately showing and telling us this, is that those who are truly saved demonstrate it by being willing to forgive those who have sinned against them. And a person who is unwilling to forgive has never truly been forgiven, has never truly understood the extent of their sin and the magnitude of the work of God forgiving what they did. 
So you know what it tells us? Uh, uh, it tells us simply this. We forgive because we have been forgiven. Or as Dave Harvey says, forgiving, forgiven sinners forgive sins. The man's inability to forgive was due to the fact that he never came to the reality of what God had done for him. He understood it, but he did not understand the significance of it. You know what I think we find ourselves doing oftentimes? I think we like to separate sins into two categories. I think we like to place our sins and the sins that people have ultimately done against us into the 10,000 talent category and the 100 denarii category. Do we not? We love to be able to sit there and go, oh, I'm willing to forgive the 100, the 100 denarii category. I have got no problem with that. I'm much better than the guy in the story. Because the truth is, I mean, you know, if, if, if they yell at them or if they, they get mad at me or if they treat me in a bad way or they call me a bad name, I, I'm righteous enough to be able to forgive them. But I want to let you know something. There are some things they can do that I will never forgive. That is 10,000 talent category, and there's no coming back from that. There's no forgiving of that. But you know what the Bible says here in the very last phrase in here? He says, so you also must forgive. You must forgive your spouse. You must forgive me. You must forgive each other. And so what we do is we sit there and say, but you don't understand. I've never done anything against God like my spouse has done to me. You know, one of the things that I love to hear is I've heard so many stories, and I want to say this. Um, it never ceases to amaze me how unbelievably brutal and cruel two people can be to each other. It amazes me. And most people, though, they try to come in and they try to tell me a story that's worse than anything I've ever heard, and rarely does that ever happen. So they come in and go, let me tell you what my husband did to me. My husband took away my cell phone. My husband said I looked fat in these pants. Now, these are terrible things. These are terrible things. Shame on you if you told your wife that. Shame on you. Hopefully you didn't ask. But you understand what I mean. So these are terrible things. But what ultimately the word of God is saying is this, is that when we sit down and we think of these horrible things that we have ultimately done and what they've done with us and we refuse to repent and we refuse to do and we sit there and say, God, you don't understand what they've done to us. It is a clear indication that you don't understand the extent of your sin. That's the problem. You can't forgive because you don't see yourself as a guilty sinner. And there's two primary things, and this is what I would say. First of all, you have committed great sins against God. See, most of us grew up in church and everything else, and we think, I'm pretty good, man. Never smoked, drank, or chew, or ran around with those who do. <laughs> I'm good, man. I got all the Baptist stuff going around. You could not be more grotesquely saturated in sin. The Bible says that if you look on a woman, man, with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery with her. The Bible teaches us very clearly that every time your affections are greater for something else, any instant, listen to me, every instant your affections and your love are for something else other than God, you are an adulterer. Chew on that for a little while. Every second of every day. Every second of every day, we do not live in perfect faith to God. It is sin. The Bible says if you even have hate in your heart for somebody else, you are guilty of murder. I'm looking at a group of murders, and you're looking at the chief murderer of all right here. 
And so what we do is when we say that our sin is not much, what we've done is we've, we've failed to understand that we've committed great sins against God, greater than anybody could have ever committed against us. But here's the second and most important thought, is not only, do you have, not, not only have you committed great sins against God, but you have committed sins against a great God. That's the difference. Listen to what a saying of the Puritans were. He says, let me never forget that the heinousness of sin lies not so much in the nature of sin committed, but rather in the greatness of the person sinned against. In other words, what makes our sin so horrendous towards God is because he is infinitely greater than any of us. You can sin against me, that's bad. If you sin against God, it's infinitely bad. Do you see that? And it is so much worse than anything that could have ever been done to you or anything you could have ultimately done. But yet, what did God do? Instead of demanding perfection and demanding your payment, he extended grace to you. So that's the picture of the word of God that he has. So what I want to do is this. In the last just minute or two, just a couple minutes, I want to give you some practical application of what we've talked about. Remember where we were. In chapter 2, we were talking about the horrible place that we were in before God saved us. We talked about the doing of God. God just, for no purpose except for his grace, and that he's a sovereign God and he chose to save us, saved us. And remember that it came at a very great cost as sending his only son who became a payment of our sin and became the perfection that was required of God for us. Now he has turned around and said, what I've done for you, you turn around and you do for each other. You do it by forgiving and forbearing because that's what I've done for you. But you know what? This idea, I think forbearing, we understand better than we do forgiving. And let me explain forgiving just a little bit. What is forgiveness? What is it? First of all, forgiveness is not forgetting or pretending that nothing has ever happened. Have you ever heard that? I mean, people have come to me and they say, hey, listen, I really want to forgive, but I can't forgive. And I said, well, what is it that you believe you're not forgiving? Why? He goes, because I can't stop remembering it. When I truly forgive, I won't remember it anymore. And I'm like, who told you that? Everybody. I said, well, then everybody's wrong. Listen to me. If you to leave this place this morning and you're angry at me and you want to sin against me. And as you're driving out, you pull out and you drive over my child and my, you kill my child. I will never forget that. I will never forget. I will never forget the smell of the air. I will never forget of the temperature of the air. I will never forget what I was wearing, what he was wearing. I will never forget what you were driving. I will never forget the pavement, the place. I will never forget any of it because it was painful. But I can never forget, but I can still forgive. Because I can still sit there and come and minister to you and love on you and say, Brother, I know you didn't mean it. I forgive you. My son's dead. I'll never forget. But I can forgive. Instead, forgiveness is this, no longer holding the offense over another while demanding retribution, but rather returning good for evil. You just don't hold it against the person anymore. You don't demand anything of them. Notice, why why do people not forgive? Let me give you a couple reasons very quickly. It gives us power over the other. Isn't that a great feeling? They owe me. They owe me. I'm in a position of power. That's why people don't forgive. Number two, it allows us to, to weigh uh, a way to conceal our sin by focusing on the sin of another. Isn't that a great place, great way to hide and conceal your sin? Is just be focused on what somebody else did to you. 
Man, as long as you today are consumed about what your husband did to you last week, last Friday, whatever, as long as you're consumed with that, you never have to really fess up that you're in need of forgiving yourself. That's a much better place to be. Number three, it allows us to remain self-centered and self-focused. I love when people come in. And see, see, now you know how to kind of trick yourself. But, uh, you know, you know this, uh, I'm kind of showing all my things. When people come in, you go, you just don't understand what they've done to me. You just don't understand. And, and you're right. In certain ways, I don't understand that. But what I find more than often is the reason they're unwilling to forgive is because they just love themselves. They somehow believe, listen, somehow believe it's all about them. That's what they believe. Number four, it allows us to retain leverage to get our way, right? Hey, let's go do this. No. Do you remember what you did last week? But, but I don't want to go and eat at the all salad buffet. Do you remember what you did last week? Okay, we'll go eat at the all salad buffet. Do you see what I'm saying? It's controlling. If I got something on you, I can control you. You know, I can say hello to everybody. You're the one that sinned against me. And when I look towards you, I, I, I sit there and go, hmm, hmm. Would you be the one to go open the door, please? And you know what we're thinking. You owe me. It's leverage. All right? So how do you know when forgiveness takes place? If it's not completely forgetting about it, how do you forget it? And, and can I say this too? Can I say that even forgiveness does not mean a lack of pain? Can I say that? You can forgive somebody and still feel pain because of what was committed against you. Do you think there would ever be a day that I didn't feel pain when you ran over my child? I will remind you of the incredible pain that the Lord Jesus Christ suffered because of your sin in order to forgive you. He forgave you, but there was great pain, yes? So here's the deal. He says here, he says, how do you know when forgiveness has taken place? Here we go. First of all, uh, you no longer hold the offense against them. You know this in your heart. And see, right now you're thinking to yourself whether you've truly forgiven or not. And you know, as soon as I said that, you never long, no longer hold the offense against them. You know in your mind you're holding it against them. Number two, you no longer remind them of their failure. Even in a time of weakness, you don't throw it up back in their face. Thank, praise God God doesn't do that to us. And you do the same thing. That's how you know. Now, does it mean that you forgot about it? No. But you don't use it as a weapon. You no longer seek to dispense consequences for their sin. In other words, you don't think that you have to discipline and paddle your spouse. Well, I'll show him. He's like a child. I'll discipline him. I'll discipline her. I'll show her. Here are the consequences for you. You mess with me. You sin against me. This is what you're going to have. You're going to have a cold-blooded wife for the next year. Or a cold-hearted husband for the next year. Next thing, you no longer take pleasure in their pain and suffering. I think this is one of the saddest things. It's so sad to me to be with couples and the couple will embarrass themselves. And the other couple will sit there and they'll start laughing. As they find enjoyment, that puts me just so in such an uncomfortable spot. Because they're rooting against each other, not for each other. And I think when forgiveness truly happens, what we do is we no longer take pleasure when they're in pain. That's how you know you've forgiven. Finally, number five, and I'll go very quickly. You return to them good for evil. That's what grace is. You don't give them what you deserve. You give them what they do not deserve. Now, here's the thing. Where does forgiveness start? First of all, it starts vertically. Handing over the right to judge and condemn over to God. You don't play God. 
It is not your right to judge the heart of your spouse. It is not your right to discipline your spouse. It is not your uh, right to bring the wrath of God down on your spouse. There's only one God and he's in heaven. So in order to forgive, the first thing you have to do is give over your rights or any sense of your rights to God and say, you are God and I am not. If you want to discipline them, that's up to you. You're a righteous judge. You'll deal with it the way that it should ultimately be dealt with. It's not my job to be able to do it. And once you get the judge hat off, you can put the fellow believer hat on or the spouse hat on. And what the Bible says is then we are able to come to them secondly and do this. It continues vertically. Now you can go to your spouse in grace for the purpose of reconciliation. So you don't have to go to them saying, hey, look, this is what you're going to have to do. And this is why you did it. And listen, you don't have to do any of that. That's God's. You just come to them and say, listen, we've got to make this right. There's something wrong with us. We're not going to ignore it. There is a sin that you've sinned against me. I love you. I'm not trying to get back with you. I'm just letting you know this was sin and we need to be able to reconcile. And I want to be able to forgive you. But I want you to recognize what it is that you've ultimately done. And that way you're not trying to get, you see, you understand that? You're not trying to get back at them. You're just trying to reconcile. That's what God calls us to do. Leave the judging up to God. And here's the third thing, very important. Stop mourning your own, your, your miserable physical state and begin mourning for your spouse's miserable spiritual state. Most couples that I talk with, they have a big problem with this. When they come, all they can do is they're so overwhelmed with the pain that their husband has caused that they have failed to hurt for their husband. So many men who have come in and talked, they are in so much pain because of what their wife has done to them, but they have never been in pain for their wife. Do you understand what I'm saying? What I'm saying is there has to come a time that we begin to take our pain, set it aside, and begin to understand that our spouse is in pain because they are in rebellion against God. And so our heart begins to separate from ourselves, begins to reflect to them. And we sit there and say, God, I feel their pain and I feel sorry for them. And I want to intercede with them because they are not right with God. And finally, let me give you these final things. Three results for forbearing and forgiving. This is what happens when we extend this grace to one another. Let me go through them very quickly. These are not mine. These are John Piper's. And you read it in a book, um, in, in his book on marriage, this momentary marriage. This is what he says. As far as forgiving, forbearing, why do we do it? There is going to be conflict based on sin and strangeness. Do you understand that? Do you understand that in the marriage there's going to be conflict because of sin and because of strangeness? And sometimes, as he says, you're not going to know the difference between the two sometimes. So because of it, we have to forbear and we have to forgive for the marriage to continue. For the marriage to be all that God has called it to be. Number two, because the hard, rugged work of enduring and forgiving is what makes it possible for affections to flourish when they seem to have died. The hardest thing for me to convince people when their marriage is just a wreck is to forgive and forbear. Why? Because they feel no sense of love for their spouse. So what they do is, because there is no sense of love, they do not want to forgive and forbear. And what are they doing when they do that? They're saying that the primary purpose in marriage is my happiness. I don't have it anymore. 
I've lost my happiness and I've lost my love, therefore it can't stop. But instead, what God does, he tells you to forbear and to forgive. Because if you will forbear and forgive, it will give God enough time to be able to restore the marriage and allow those affections to return once again. Do you get that? Finally, number three, because God gets glory when two very different and very imperfect people forge a life of faithfulness in the furnace of affliction by relying on Christ. God gets the glory when you forgive and forbear. That's what this whole purpose of marriage is about. The whole purpose of your marriage is to demonstrate the wonderful covenant relationship between Christ and his church. And he's, guess what? He forgives and forbears. Guess what we're doing when we're forgiving and forbearing? Bringing glory to God and to God alone. Now, I want to finish with this. This is such a hard thing. I told with Dan in the beginning of the first service. I said, I don't feel very good about this message today. And he just kind of laughed for a second. And I said, he says, it's because we're so bad at it. And I think he's right. I think so oftentimes we forget how little we truly are forgiven. Or how much we are truly forgiven. And how little we're really truly willing to forgive. And so my call today is this. First thing to do is to be overwhelmed by the forgiveness that you've received. And today, make a decision to push that outward, to use that same grace that was extended to you, to extend it to your spouse, and to forgive. But I'm going to let you know, it has to be done when you're overwhelmed by your own sinfulness and the forgiveness of God. You have to be overwhelmed by it. And when you do, God will give you the grace for you to extend that grace one another. There's a wonderful opportunity for you to not only be restored to your spouse, but it's also an opportunity for you to bring glory to God. The question is, will you forbear and will you forgive? And let me tell you what I feel like I see right now. Can I just say, and I can't, I can't trust in that, but let me tell you what I think is going on. What I think is going on is right now, you're embittered. You're angry. You're frustrated. You're saying, preacher, you have no idea what I've been through. You're right. But God does. And he wrote right here in his word how you and have to deal with that thing. You don't have to live embittered anymore. You don't have to leave embittered anymore. You can come and take that same grace and extend it outward. Would you do it? Now, God is extending the grace to you today if you've never been saved. If you're not saved, if you find yourself with God's wrath storing up for the day of judgment, it's time to repent. It's time to turn. I would love to meet with you down here and tell you how to do that. But right now, could we even begin with our men, get rid of our pride and sit there and say, you know what? I need to forgive. And it's got to begin with me in my home. Ladies, you do the same. Let's pray, Jesus. We thank